Yeah, we're just looking at what Jesus teaches us about money because money really matters, doesn't it? You think? Tim uh, Murray kicked off our series and he talked about how Jesus teaches about money more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. How incredible is that? Uh, around, they estimate around a seventh or an eighth, seventh to an eighth of all of Jesus' teaching is focused on money and possessions. So how many of you know this is a critical subject for us to look at this morning, isn't it? Yeah? And over these weeks. Um, but the reality is that we struggle to talk about money. I just want to recap a few points that Tim made uh, in the first week. We struggle to talk about money, uh, probably firstly because for some reason in our country it's seen as a private business. Actually, as if someone came up to you and said, how much do you earn? You'd be like, back off. You know what I mean? Why, why are you asking me that? It's a pri- it's seen as a private thing. We don't even, our closest friends often don't really know how much money we have, how much we have in the bank. It's seen as a private thing. So it's difficult for us to talk about. Also, many of us have our worth or our identity or even our security tied up in the whole area of wealth and money. So it's a difficult thing to touch on. In church, we'd suggest it's even harder to talk about. And uh, some of that's because Tim talked about a mixed legacy. And what we mean by that is often the church, the church, has dealt with money, sometimes not in the best way. Often being vastly wealthy compared, you know, for much of the church history, some of the church has been uh, just incredibly wealthy. We also have seen TV evangelists, haven't we, that, you know, will get your prayers answered if you'll send your $10 in often. And all of that makes it really difficult to begin to talk about money in church. Also, we mentioned that it's really hard because some of us that are doing the teaching happen to be paid ministers. Yeah? Yeah? like me. So it can't help but feel a bit odd that when we get up here and start talking about money, it feels a little bit like we're canvassing for you guys to give. And we just want to say that's not our heart at all. But it's critical that we talk about money in church because ultimately Jesus really cares about our connection to money. Uh, Interestingly, Stace talked about this extravagance yeah, this living it out and pushing it and actually not holding back. Yes, we want to see that in worship. Yes, we want to see that in our praise. How much more so do we want to see that in how we view money? Just me then. Okay, that's fine. Some of us do, don't we? That demonstrates extravagance, doesn't it? And a praise and a worship of God when people say, how come you see money in that way? How can you look at money in that way? I don't understand what an opportunity this is to talk about Jesus and how he redefines the way that we see money, the way that we connect to money. Um, I just want to acknowledge some of the presence of God around this subject. Uh, a few weeks back, we, uh, as a group of elders, we were reading. We've been reading some passages connected to money for a few months now. And uh, we were just reading this passage. can't even remember which one it was. Oh, it was the rich young ruler passage. And the presence of God, just through reading the scriptures, that just seemed to land as we talked and were challenged deeply, you know, these deeply challenging passages, the presence of God in that place. 
I know um, it was fascinating to see how some of the teaching lined up with uh, our church family meeting when we started to talk about money. Personally, for me and Liz, we've got some calls to make about money and about the future. And then interestingly, those of you who are part of our discussion group, there's a discussion group that meet on a Monday afternoon. You're all welcome to come. It's not a secret group at half 12. And we've been going through the book of Corinthians for how long? Anyone? who's <laughs> For about five years, I think, genuinely. Uh, one Corinthians and two Corinthians. The Monday after we begin this series, what do we come across in two Corinthians? Money. We come across the passage that's headed uh, where is it? Encouragement to give generously and the cheerful giver. At those moments, my spiritual antennas go up and I go, hang on, maybe God is saying something here to us. Maybe God has a message for us as a church family and as individuals as well. I remember a few years back in the early years of our marriage, uh, Liz felt really challenged to write Jesus is Lord across the top of our bank statements. Which was really interesting because in those days, which makes me sound really old, we didn't have digital copies come through. So when we went to apply for a mortgage, that was a very interesting conversation to try and explain why we've got this phrase written across our, our bank statements. Uh, especially when they see your tithing as well and you're giving to the place that you're getting paid from. They all get very confused at that and it's a bit of a hard thing to explain. But... Um, but it was a statement that we were longing to live our lives by, that we're longing to live in a way that says, Jesus, you're not just Lord of my church life, you're not just Lord of my spiritual life, you're not just Lord of my moral life, but actually you are Lord of my financial life as well. All that I have, everything that I earn, all that I own, you are Lord. Jesus is Lord. So we've been looking over the last couple of weeks a couple of key principles that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about money. But this week, I've been given a wonderful task. I'm a bit annoyed at Tim about this. But um, we're going to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at a parable. Uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Before we read the scripture together, I want to ask you a question. Each one of you a question. And this is the question. How wealthy are you? So I want you to look at this, this scale that we've got. Oh yeah, by the way, text in. I meant to mention that. If you want to text in your questions, we, as long as I don't go on too long, which to be honest, there's a big risk of that this morning, I'll be honest, I'll prepare you. Hopefully we'll have some time for some questions and answers at the end. Uh, so if you want to text in, there's a number there at the top. Pretty sure it's the right number this week. So text in your question. Tim's going to be getting those, and then we'll have a bit of it. So be, you know, I won't be able to answer all the questions. You know, this uh, I'm not an expert, uh, but please text in because if you, your question might be in someone else's mind, you know what I mean. So don't think it's just for you. Text in a question, and we'll discuss that at the end. So how wealthy are you? I want you to take one minute just to look at that scale and put and point on there where you think you, you sit. So very poor, poor, average, rich, very rich. Where would you place yourself this morning? Financially. You can text in your questions, not shout them out. No, I'm joking. No, it's, great. it's great to clarify it, yeah. How wealthy are you? So financially, where do you see yourself? Yeah, yeah. in financial terms, money terms, 
asset terms. So I'm reckoning, this is a guess, but I'm reckoning most of us would have put ourselves around here. Yeah? Some of us may not have, which is fine, but some, most of us probably would see ourselves as not very, very poor. We'd accept that, we, well, we're not the worst off. Um, we may have seen ourselves as average. We're certainly not the very rich, um, but we're probably somewhere in the middle. Like I said, some of you might not have done, which is fine, uh, but most of us, I would imagine, that's normally where we see ourselves in terms of wealth. And the reason for that is because we determine how much money we've got, our wealth, by comparing ourselves to people around us, people who, who around us who have got money. And... Um, so it depends who we're comparing ourselves will determine how rich we see ourselves. So if you compare yourself to these people, some of you all know this is, this is Messi on your left. Uh, he is set to earn, apparently, if my research is right, £96 million this coming season for playing football. Probably the best footballer in the world. Although Bale, last night, if those of you managed to watch it, what a goal, what a goal. Um, but Messi, so he's set to earn about 96 million. On the other side is uh, Mayweather. Those of you who know boxing will know Money Mayweather. Uh, he, he earned, get this, from his fight against McGregor, which happened recently, he earned 154.82 million pounds from one fight. That's credible. I mean... I know there's training and all that kind of stuff, but if you kind of calculate it to the 60 minutes that he spent in the ring, then he earned about 2.5 million pounds a minute. And that's incredible. So if we compare ourselves to these people, we suddenly shoot right down this end of the scale and we see ourselves as very poor. But then obviously we turn on Red Nose Day or Children in Need or some of these programs and we see the poorest of the poor, some of the families that can't fit, you know, that are starving, many families that can't afford uh, medicine that over here would cost us a few pence, and their children are dying, and suddenly we shoot to the other end of the scale, and we see ourselves as very, very rich. Perhaps, in some ways, we see ourselves as too rich. So, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 16. Here we go. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Fascinating parable that Jesus teaches us there. So what is Jesus teaching us? Jesus isn't saying in this parable that if we're rich, then we're bad. He doesn't say there was a rich man, and because he was rich, he was evil. In fact, as far as I can see, there is no objective amount of wealth that is given either in the Old Testament or the New Testament that is necessarily more or less holy. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you see it, Jesus never says, this is how much you have to earn or this is how much money you should have if you are going to follow me or you can't have this if you're going to follow me. Instead, the rich man here is criticised by Jesus in light of the presence of the poor man, Lazarus. You see, it's the poverty of Lazarus, the relative wealth of the rich man, that Jesus points out as wrong. You see, there was a need right on the doorstep of the rich man's house, right there in front of him. But instead of using his wealth to meet that need, he stepped over the poor man. He stepped over the need and continued in his life of luxury and fasting. He had the power, the means and the ability to serve and help this poor man, but he didn't. And this is the way I believe that the Bible teaches us to think about wealth, to think about finance in what would be called relative terms. Relative to those we meet, relative to those around us, what does our wealth look like? Relative to the poor in our communities, Relative to the needs around us, what is our wealth like? Uh, imagine that you, ha- uh, you, you have three kids. If you have kids, you imagine that. Or you're looking after three kids. And uh, you decide that you're going to give a bag of sweets to each of those children. That's something you're going to do. You're going to bless them with a bag of sweets. You give them the sweets and you walk out the room. And when you come back, one of the children has two. Another child has one. And the other child has none. So you think, that's odd. So you give them another bag each of sweets to make sure they each get a bag of sweets. You go out the room and do something. You come back. One of those children has now got four bags of sweets. One of those children has two bags of sweets. And the other one still has none. You wouldn't be angry because they have sweets. Yeah? You've given them sweets. That's part of your blessing to them. It's part of your giving the good things to the children. But what you'd be annoyed at and what you'd be angry at and what you rightly should be angry at is the relative, the relativity of the sweets, if you like. The relative that actually one has plenty when the other has none. And this is how I think the Bible teaches us to think about wealth. In the parable, Abraham says to the rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. One translation says, while you were alive, you had all that you desired, surrounded in luxury, while Lazarus had nothing. 
And this is what we see in our world today, don't we? A world shaped by inequality. Some having plenty, whilst others go with nothing. And I would say that this is the natural way of man. Man by ourselves will always end up in whatever communities, whatever societies, whatever governments. I think history shows that it will end up with some having plenty, whilst others have very little. So we're going to have a little bit of, look, of a look at how that looks across our world. Are you ready for a little demonstration? Yeah? Some of you would have seen this before. We did do it here about five years ago. Uh, I'm just going to see if I can move the pulpit. Uh, when we looked at about being rich, and uh, it's not mine, I have to say. I've stolen it from a TED Talk, which you can find online, which is a great, great TED Talk. Let me just... It's all right, mate. I've just got to shift that there. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry for you guys over there. You're, you're, gonna, you're not going to see it all. Um, okay. So what I wanted to do is talk about relative wealth across our globe. Okay? So we understand where we sit in terms of the wealth in our world. Now, the world has um, about 7.4 billion people in it. And believe it or not, it's a lot of people. Uh, but let's round it down for the sake of today. We don't need to do that yet, Jane, sorry. Everyone's wondering what that is now. Uh, take that off. So um, our world has about 7.4. We're going to round it down to 7 billion people. And the question that we're going to look at is, how rich are you? Some of you are feeling a bit nervous now, aren't you? I must admit. So let's do a quick example because we haven't got much time. But basically, did, we're going to represent each billion people by this box. Okay, so I want you to imagine that this contains a billion people. Can you do that for me? A billion people are in this box, okay? And um, we're going to look at how these seven billion people pan out across our globe. So, the poorest of the poor, we're going to begin with, and this is the two, it's actually about 2.5 billion people that can't afford a toilet. Okay? So these are the people that struggle to even put food on the table. They're in extreme poverty. Uh, they don't have fresh running water. They don't own their own homes. Some may live on rubbish dumps, may have to search for food that others throw away. Others live in some, uh, slums uh, with about 10, 12, I don't know, 15 people living in one room. And that is the two billion poorest people in our society. Okay? And now their aspiration, their hope, the thing that they're saving up for in life is a pair of shoes. Okay? So that's their, their hope and their desire. That's what they're saving for. Then we come to the next set of people. And these people are slightly better off. They have a pair of shoes. They've managed to afford that. Uh, they may have low-paid jobs and perhaps some sort of income. So this is the next. And there are 3 billion of these, I think. Uh, so these people may even have access to running water. Some uh, may even have electricity, some access to electricity. They are healthier than the poorest people, healthier than these um, but they may not be able to get a proper education or some of them may have to work so that they're not able to, to have an education. And they're saving their money 
and oh, we nearly went over. And their aspiration and their hope is to afford a bike, okay? And uh, so that maybe they can travel a little bit further and, uh, and earn a better income for their family. Now we get the next billion set of people. And these people are richer than both of these sets of people. And um, many of them have, um, they're comfortable, they're healthy, there is education in many cases, and even in some cases the education is free. Uh, they have some access to healthcare, to doctors, uh, to medicines, maybe to schools, and, and they each have a job. But their aspiration and their hope is that they might be able to afford, what do you think it is? A car. There we go. So their hope is that they can get a car and, and get some transport. Now we come to the billion richest people in our world. These are the billion richest in our world. They are richer than all of these. They have a, a bike. They may have had three or four. They have a car. Some may even have two cars in their household. Uh, they have a job, they have ha a house, they have health care, access to an education. And their aspiration and their hope is that at some point they may be able to afford to fly on holiday, to access a holiday abroad. That's what their hope and their aspiration is. So this isn't my thing, this is the stats the facts of the wealth within our world, this is how our world stacks up. I wonder when you look at that list, where you fall, considering your income and your access to wealth. Do you want to put that website up? So the next thing we're going to do, and this is a great tool, I'm sure lots of you have used this. Um, if you really want to depress yourself, you can use this tool. Um, so if we go on, this is called globalrichlist.net, and basically what it allows you to do is input your salary and see where you come in the world in terms of wealth. Uh, now just to point out, some of us then go, oh, but this is about um, the cost of living, and actually it costs more to live in our society than other societies. Just to point out, this website takes all of that into account. So it uses a thing called purchasing power parity dollars. That's a confusing statement, but basically, simply, what it does is it takes into account how much it costs to live in a certain society. So the, this website is basically telling you how much bread you can put on the table, how much basic things you can afford in your country, okay? Is that clear? Because that's very important, otherwise it's kind of pointless uh, doing this. So let's take... Um, a job, um, only because I don't know of anyone here that does this job. Let's take a, a fire person. And uh, a net salary of a fire person, uh, according to the internet, that I've done some research, is around 28,000. Um, so if we input 28,000 into there and we put show results. There we go. That's a lovely little diagram, that, isn't it? So we see that if we were going to place, we're in a, a fire person in our country is in the 0.76% of the 
richest people in the world. Okay? So we would put this person probably about there on our scale. Uh, let's take a slightly less well-paid job for some. Others can make lots of money in this, but uh, a painter and decorator. So according to the internet, we'll earn between about 17,000 maybe to 23,000. So if we could we go back and put 17. So if your earnings are about 17,000 and show results, you end up in the 2.91 richest. So we're probably about there, I would say. Maybe a bit further up, but you won't be able to see the diagrams. So this massively affects the way that we see our wealth, doesn't it? Yeah? When I first came across this tool, this website, I have to be honest, I was broken for the vast wealth that we enjoy. Pretty much 95% of us in this room, there will be some others that struggle, but 95% of us never think about transport, never think about medical bills, never think about paying for education. It radically changes the way that we see our wealth and helps us to understand that we are hugely blessed and we experience a wealth here in England that people across the globe would only ever dream of. That's why so many are risking their lives to go across the sea, to come and live in what is seen as a kind of promised land, a place where there is such wealth. And we have to read what Jesus teaches in Luke with all of this in our mind, don't we? So we read the verse again. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores. Now, I really don't want to push too hard this morning because we can only take so much. But we have to realize how blessed and how wealthy we are as people. How wealthy our society is, what has been handed to us by our parents and our parents' parents and going back thousands of years, the society that we live in. We have to face up to the reality that we are so rich. And I don't want that to create guilt in our hearts. That's not the point of this morning. The point is just to recognize and realize the truth because so many of us don't realize the truth of how blessed we are. So what I want to do before um, we go into some questions and answers is look at three things that I think now that we know our wealth and we understand how blessed we are, what do we take from Jesus' parable for us who are rich? So let's look at three things. Firstly, and this is a key one, I think Jesus teaches us that we can't hide our heads in the sand. That is my number one uh, what I see most of the time when we start talking about wealth and relative wealth and the poor and all of this, and we see the extreme poverty that is in our society, and we recognize the truth that so many of us can do so little about it. The tendency is for us to just put our heads in the sand and perhaps it will go away. Perhaps if we don't look at it, we don't talk about it, it will go away. And we mustn't do that. It is really tough. And it is really complex. And in some cases, there is little that we can do about it. But we cannot ignore it. 
Um, David quoted part of this a few weeks back from uh, Edward Everett Hale, and he says this famously, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. I think he's overcomplicated that quote, I have to say. But basically, it's saying, yeah, we can't do it all. We can't do everything. We can't go and fix Syria. We can't go and fix the poverty in Africa. But because we can't do everything, we mustn't refuse to do the small things, the little things, the things that we do have power over and the things that we can control. Interestingly, not long after the parable that we've just read, Jesus confronts the rich young ruler for his heart and his heart's desire for wealth and possessions. And he says this, that we all probably know, most of us will know this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I imagine after looking at this and, and that website, some of us will say the same response that the disciples said to Jesus and those listening. They said, well, who then can be saved? Forget it then. You know what I mean? Well, it's impossible then. And what does God say, Jesus say? Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When we hide our heads in the sand, we stop Jesus from taking the little that we can offer, what we can give, and transforming it and making something incredible with it because we're hiding away. So don't hide your heads in the sand. Secondly, this is a question I want us to go away with from this morning. It's to ask the question, why have I been blessed with such wealth? Why? What am I using it for? You see, Jesus challenges the rich man, not because he has wealth, but because of what he's doing with his wealth. It says in verse 19, he was clothed in purple. Purple at that time was a very difficult color to get hold of in clothes, and it, it was very, very expensive. It basically demonstrates vast, uh, elaborate wealth. He said he's clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The message translation modernizes that too. There once was a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. That's a great way of saying it, isn't it? You see, this man was basically living the high life. He was spending his wealth selfishly on fine clothes, expensive linen, greedily feasting, when right in front of him was a need that had to be met, a need that needed to be met. And I think it's really good for us to ask the question, why am I wealthy? Why do I have so much wealth? Why am I so blessed? What does God want me to do with this wealth? Tim said at the start of the series a famous quote that says, don't tell me your priorities or your values. Don't tell me about them. Show me your bank statements and I'll tell you your priorities. I'll tell you your values. And I wonder, one of the things that I feel that me and Liz are going to do, we've talked about this, and I wonder if many of us have to go back to our budgets after this series and say, "What, God, what do you want to do? He may say nothing. He may say, crack on. It's all good. But God, why have you blessed me with such wealth? And where am I spending it? And where should it be spent? So ask the question, why have I been blessed with such great wealth? And finally, a great question to ask is this. Who has been laid at your gate? 
What need has been laid at your gate? Jesus challenges this man because he comes out of his house every day and there is a need right there, right on his doorstep, a real need. And yet he just walks straight past and goes and enjoys his life feasting and doing all that. I wonder if God has laid some needs at our doorstep. Now, we know, as we said, we cannot fix everything. We cannot change the world individually. But maybe God has laid a specific uh, need at your feet. One of our challenges in our day is we live in a global world, don't we? So in some ways, every need is at our doorstep, which makes it even harder, I think, to understand what we should be investing in, what we should be giving to. But perhaps God has put a neighbour on your heart or a relative that is in need, perhaps a member of our church family that is in real need, that you have the ability and the means to help out, that I have the ability to help out. Perhaps today is just another prompt to just say, go and write that check that you know you should be writing that I've put on your heart to help that need. For some of us, I'm sure that we'll have a passion for a certain group of people or a certain need. Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's those seeking asylum. Maybe it is those without water or medicines in other countries. God has placed some of these needs at our very doorstep. And what we cannot do is step over it and carry on with our feasting and our great lives when there are real needs that God has put there. So... Point one, we're very rich. It's reality. It's not my viewpoint. It's the reality of the world that we live in. And off the back of Jesus' parable, let's not hide ourselves from that. Let's not hide our heads in the sand. Let's ask the question, why have we been blessed with this vast amount of wealth? What does God want us to do with the money that he has given us? And who has been laid at our gate? Where are the needs that God has put right in front of our faces. So why don't you close your eyes just before we go. Have we had any questions, Tim? Yeah, we've had a few questions. So Tim Murray's going to come and answer all of those, which will be great. Say again. Yeah, keep sending them in. So um, I'm just going to pray because I'm very aware that a natural reaction to this without the Spirit is for us to feel guilty and, um, and to fight and to get angry and to say, well, I've struggled with finances. And we have. Many of you are in deep needs. And maybe you feel like Lazarus at the gate at times. And that's fine. So I just want to pray, is that okay, before we go into some questions, that the Lord will speak. We don't want to hear what Tim thinks. We don't necessarily want to hear what stats say. We want to hear what the Lord is saying to us. So, Father, we just bring you all of this. And um, as Stacy said, Lord, we want to live... Uh, in an extravagant response to the gospel. Uh, and that has got to touch our wallets. We can't jump around here and sing and then it not affect uh, the, the thing that we are so often depend on, that we look to for our security. So we pray, Father, that you would make us an extravagant church, that are willing, Lord, not to live for finance, but to, to live for you in every area of our life. And we just pray that you would just land this in our hearts, Father, as we go into some questions and answers. Amen. Amen. Have we got another mic, Josh? Do you want to grab? Thanks, mate. So I specifically asked that Tim would be up with me because I'm going to throw most of the questions his way. So that's good. 
Well, just uh, <coughs> just for your encouragement, Tim, I got one text that wasn't a question. It just says, absolutely brilliant. Oh. There you go, mate. Someone loves you. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was my mum. My mum's in as well. Thank you. Okay. Right, okay. Here's, here's a, a question that says, uh, agreed we must be kind to the poor, um, but we do need wisdom. Proverbs teaches us we must take responsibility for ourselves. So more important than handouts is care and help to address the root causes of poverty. I think that's more a comment than a question, but it raises some issues. Um, yeah. Agree, really. I think I've heard you say, Tim, did you say charities the poor the poor friend of justice or whatever yeah. I think justice is the key isn't it and um, the whole pushing in the river you heard that analogy as well you know that you people are pushing you know there's people getting pushed in the river and you get you're jumping in and pulling them out and you're jumping in and pulling out at some point you've got to go up the river and find out who's pushing them in <laughs> and stop that and I think that's the you know justice is which hopefully that comes into this doesn't it the injustice of it is key yeah yeah, and, and uh, kind of just as we have to acknowledge that we're rich, we have to acknowledge that although we personally may not feel we've contributed to global economic injustice, we are part of a system that causes it. And so, again, you know, I really like your points about not burying your head in the sand. You know, there are things we can do in our own little way on justice as well as charity. Both are important. Um, Feel free to keep texting in, because I've only got one or two more, so we will have time if you've got something burning to ask. Uh, Tim, given that we do live in a you know, culture where, like you say, 95% of us in this room are in the top couple of percent, um, it, it's, easy, it's, it's easy to bury our head in the sand, but also just to forget <laughs> about you know, the 98% that aren't like us. So have you got any sort of pr thoughts or, or practical tips on maybe how we can start to change the default way we see the world? Or, or what have you found helpful yourself, mate, over, you know, your journey, even preparing this and, you know? It's hard, isn't it? I do think, I do think the temptation to bury your head in the sand is so strong. I think I'm not saying, it's interesting, I wouldn't call, I love doing this message, I've done it before, uh, I wouldn't say I'm sort of like a big justice person, um, I'm not saying that, I don't want to box some people that are, um, but I, I think my response to this comes from, I follow Jesus, so I've got to look at this really. Um, I know some people have particular passions for poverty, for injustice, which is just amazing, uh, my one challenge to the church is it hasn't got to be your thing just because you follow Jesus this has got to matter you know but I'm the same you know it comes on the TV on the news you know the plight in some countries and you turn it off don't you or is that just me I do at times because it's unbearable sometimes to watch so I think my only thought is don't hide your head in the sand face this even though like I think not not like um, facing our weakness as well in it, that actually it can break our hearts and it can stop there sometimes. I think because we're fix-it people, we think, well, if we can't fix it, let's not look at it. But sometimes we've got to face up to that. What's your thoughts, Tim? Any thoughts on that? 
I, I like that point you say about it doesn't have to be your thing to take it. So, you know, if I said, oh, well, sexual fidelity, it's not really my... Other people are passionate about that, but it's not really... I prefer... So you'd all have me, wouldn't you? Um, but, but as we've said, you know, Jesus cares no less about this than he does about our sexual fidelity. So that's... Um, I think me, me, and, um, me and my wife, Jay, what we've found helpful over the years is, is to kind of... Um, do the global rich list with your own finances and get your own budget out and get to grips with it. But also, you know, to find one or two organisations that are engaged with this. Yeah. Uh, and you know you get so much stuff, you might get stuff from charities through the door, it comes in through the letterbox, straight into the recycling and out again. Is, is there's one or two that, you know, we try and make sure we actually regularly read, regularly engage with, and like you say, just sort of create the space to sit in it. Yeah. Um, and just the discipline of like telling each other, uh, uh, you know, we we need each other in this, don't we? That you know, um, when one of us slips out, or something like, oh, uh, I, I don't know, it's a bit tight this month or something. Just to sort of say to each other, come on now, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? We might need to eat a little bit more rice. That's not tight, is it? But I, I think this is something we can all help each other in, is to build a different way of seeing the world. I think the key is. The key message really in this is to change our thinking. Like Tim mentioned, that if you put in the centre point on that rich list, if you uh, go for the centre, the mean, I think is the technical maths term, the centre point, uh, it's about a thousand pounds a year is the centre. And that makes us think about it, doesn't it? You know, oh wow, so that is what some people are literally living on. And um, the other thought was just around spending time with people that have passions in this. Uh, I know there's a number of people in our church families, a number of organisations. It's like when you spend time with an evangelist, isn't it? You simply want, you feel yourself wanting to go and tell people about Jesus. Spend time with prophetic people, you kind of want it. It's the same as that. People carry a gift. So I know there's a number of people in like our um, Isaiah 58 team, we call it, which is kind of a team that are trying to keep justice at the top of the agenda. Spending time with those people, chatting to them, saying, challenging me, going and looking at the global justice board at the back. Things like that just remind us, don't they? Because it so easily falls off the list. Have to get a bit untouchy about money to do that. Uh, final question then. Um, uh, someone's texting, why does the church advocate tithing Old Testament as opposed to giving generously New Testament? I am going to let you off the hook and say, come back next week <laughs> where that will be properly addressed. So you're free from that one. But another one has just whizzed in. So here you go. We know a family who have recently become homeless. The root of the problem is gambling, but one parent refuses to address the issue. Should we give now or wait until they're ready to reform lifestyle? I think that's a question many of us have, isn't it? In different forms. Am I throwing money down the pit? And you'd have the same globally, wouldn't you, in terms of corrupt governments, charity and all that. Lots of us in the media, there's lots about not giving because it goes to the admin team or it goes to the, the CEO who's paid £600,000 a year or whatever. It's tough, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Thoughts? It's hard to know in a, a specific situation that we don't know, isn't it? But I think, um, again, we'll, we will talk about this in two weeks' time. So in two weeks' time, we'll talk about, okay, say I have made some decisions before the Lord and I'm giving significantly more than I ever have before, what does the Bible say about how to give, where to give, wisdom with giving? So we will address that then. So uh, a fuller explanation then. Just one thing I will say for now is um, this may well not be the case with the person you sent in that 
question, but I know for many of us, when something's difficult, the complexity we can use as an excuse not to get our hands dirty and, o and open the wallet, isn't it? You know, oh, I'm not confident that this money is going to be used in the right place, so I'll just think about giving next year. And I just encourage us to try and avoid that. It does raise complex issues, but uh, obedience is addressing, doing our best to investigate the issues rather than using it as a way of avoiding them. And then the other thing is sometimes the challenge is that some of those situations require us to get more involved than to throw money at it, you know. And sometimes, uh, for me, charity can be a little bit of a, it kind of settles my guilt, really. Well, at least I've given, you know. And I remember chatting to Matt Lambert. Do you remember when Matt came to talk about homelessness? Great message. And there's a podcast, you can check it out online, where he talks about actually what, what causes homelessness is lack of relationships, not lack of money. That most of us would never end up homeless because we've got a series of networks and relationships that if we sunk that low, we'd be caught. But those that end up rough sleeping, not through choice, often don't have those relationships. So he sort of says, build a relationship, which we all know costs more than, <laughs> than our money, doesn't it? Um, which is really hard, it's really tough, and I don't think any of us that are teaching on money in this series would say, we've got this nailed, we're struggling with you, with us, it, um, but let's not hide our heads in the sand and use those difficulties as an excuse not to face up, because uh, I believe that God has got some great things for us in this. One point I made, I'll finish with this, is that okay? Jesus' teachings are there to bring life and freedom, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So anything that Jesus teaches, it ultimately is to release us into a greater freedom and into greater life. So we should go away with a confidence of saying, God, thank you for challenging me on that. And thank you because you're challenging me to bring me into greater life and greater freedom. So 